You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hello everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, your dose of politics with your Wheaties on a Saturday morning or perhaps later on with the podcast. It's been a momentous time, not only with COVID-19 restrictions easing, but massive rallies across the country, cities as well as provincial towns, in support of Black Lives Matter. Till Joy, part of our Stick Together team, was able to give us access to material from the end of the Melbourne event that gives a real sense of the size and emotion of the rally. It includes voices of the families of some of the First Nations people who never came back from police custody alive and ends with an extremely sobering analysis of Australian society by Moz, a refugee who spoke the rally by phone from the Mantra Hotel in Preston, where refugees have been detained for months while they wait for medical treatment they never seemed to get. It never seems to come. These people, of course, only made the mistake of asking for asylum from Australia. Now they are in the whole of endless detention without rights. We'll hear the monologue by Maine Wyatt. Uh, it's a monologue uh, he gave at the end of Q&A on the ABC this week. Uh, it's from his play, City of Gold, which stirred things up on this week's Q&A as the uh, program focused on local issues and Black Lives Matter. We'll hear the fifth dispatch from our friends from Goongoora, East Gippsland, produced by Fiona Jude, as they weathered the aftermath of the fires last summer. You know, it just seems such a long time ago now. But in actual fact, people are still living in tents and... Uh, all the rest of it, and uh, we shouldn't be forgetting that uh, this state and this country is more than the major cities, despite the fact that uh, the ABC, for example, is uh, going to lose another 250 members of staff because of the outrageous swinging cuts that the uh, Liberal National Party has inflicted upon the national broadcaster, because apparently rural stories aren't important not. Anyway, after that, we'll get a tasty tangy bite from Kevin as he sums up the week. We go to the Darabin Council meeting, following up the latest on the fate of the Preston market, rounding off with Maz from Save Our Scene, not to be confused with Moz, who's caught in uh, the tangle of asylum seeking. 
Uh, Mez runs venues and uh, uh, he's part of a campaign called Save Our Scene. He's talking about the campaign calling for government assistance to save iconic live music venues because they're all feeling the pinch with COVID-19 and they're worried that they won't be able to uh, open their doors when uh, the uh, COVID-19 stay-at-home is lifted. But before we, we get on with the show, an important station message... Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions, and we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. Your own solidarity breakfast with Annie. Big demonstrations around Black Lives Matter for First Nations people in Australia. This is life and death and for the wider community it is about our democracy. People who couldn't go to big demonstrations because of health concerns walked in solidarity in smaller numbers scattered across the country. Even lone dog walkers held flags in support, I've been told. It was estimated that the Wagga demonstration with a thousand or so people compares to a hundred thousand rally in the city. The following excerpts from the Melbourne rally were from the end of the day, collected by Till Joy. My name's Crystal McKinnon, I'm a Yamaji woman and I'm very honoured to read out these statements today. So, me and Tanine will be reading them out and the first one's from Wayne Fallon Morrison's family. It's been written by Latoya Rule. So, we are the family of Wayne Fallon Morrison who was killed in custody on the 26th of September 2016. We'd like to acknowledge the other Aboriginal families represented today, including their ancestors who are with us as we gather and their ongoing organising and struggle to arrive at this very moment. We also acknowledge the wider black peoples and people of colour communities with us today who have also been affected by the issue of global police and correctional brutality, including the murder of their loved ones to whom we acknowledge their deaths as avoidable causes linked to state policy that is intrinsic to ongoing colonial projects towards the demise of racialised communities to the benefit of white supremacy. Our brother was killed in custody of South Australian corrections in ways that mirror the murder of George Floyd in Turtle Island, America. While we cannot state here today, as our coronial inquest is ongoing, that our brother was murdered, the events leading to his death were results of numerous corrections officers who not only neglected to visit Wayne to check on his welfare through the six days he spent on remand at Yatala, Labor prison alongside taunting and teasing him in Holden Hill cells, but who used their bodies to restrain, restrain Wayne with a spit hood over his head and around his neck, his wrists and ankles cuffed, and his body was put in the prone position. Yeah. 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 
His body was put in the prone position, face down, in the back of a prison van with another seven correctional officers inside. Pause for a second and let the imaginary resonate with you. As Latoya reflects on the footage, they consider the procedure as resembling something of a violent gang kidnapping. However, this gang of correctional officers stopped their van less than three minutes later and at some point they allegedly realised Wayne was unconscious. We will never know what happened in that van as there was no CCTV footage. In fact, just weeks before the 19 plaintiffs representing correctional officers and their lawyers took our state coroner to the Supreme Court of South Australia in an attempt to remove her from our case and ensure the seven correctional officers do not even show up to face our family and community to give evidence. Shame. Our coroner's case is due to go back to court soon and we await the dates for this. That we will distribute across our networks under the hashtag Justice for Wayne Feller. Please take out your phones and write this down so you can be present in helping us hold South Australian corrections to account. We will need every bit of assistance we can to get in pushing these officers to face us. George Floyd was murdered under the knee of the state that is founded upon the torture and murder of its native, indigenous and black citizens. Our brother Wayne Feller Morrison was killed with the weight of over 400 Aboriginal deaths in custody since 1988 that have had not one officer brought to conviction for any of the murders. There can be no true justice for Wayne Feller Morrison without justice for George Floyd. There can be no true justice for any Aboriginal death in custody victim in Australia without justice for all racial without justice for all racialized minority groups globally. Justice is not individual convictions. Justice is the dismantling of the state-sanctioned state violence and brutality by corrections and police officers towards indigenous, black and peoples of color communities. Black lives only seem to matter when they are loud, thought-provoking, resisting, strong and revolutionary. So let's keep it that way. Do not be silent. Do not waste the gift that is the breath of your lungs when our siblings have had their breaths taken away. Lastly, we consider George's family. We consider the trauma they are suffering now, including the responsibility they now have to fight for justice for his life. And we will continue to scream his name. Justice for George Floyd, say his name. Thank you. here and read out the statements of the families um, who've been killed by custody and I'm going to be reading out uh, David Dungai's family's statement. Um, so we are horrified by the events unfolding in the United States but is Australia any better? We are the, we are the family of David Dungai, a proud Dungai warrior who's tragically died in custody on the 26th, 29th of December, 2015. David was 26 years old. He was a diabetic. He needed healthcare. He was a sportsman and a poet and an uncle and was meant to be coming home soon. On the day that he was overpowered by prison guards, 
He was alone in his cell, eating rice crackers he purchased at the prison shop. Some of the nurses were concerned about David's high blood sugar. Instead of allowing the clinical care he needed unhindered, prison guards took control of David's situation. They created a security crisis that the coroner found was totally unnecessary. One guard called the immediate action team, the IAT, and the IAT are like SWAT for prisoners over a packet of biscuits. The images of what happened to David have been viewed all over the world. Our young man was held down by prison guards while being sedated. David cried, I can't breathe, over a dozen times in the space of his last nine minutes. The guards ignored his cries for help. Sound similar or familiar? The US is in flames because of what happened to George Floyd. We watch in horror, yet the exact same thing happened to David Dungai. Stand in solidarity with us who are now locked up in the mantra 
Australia for medical help, and I am currently still locked up on the third floor of the Mantra Hotel in Preston, Melbourne, along with approximately 65 other refugees. I support and stand in solidarity with black people across the world, in particular with First Nation Australians, and I believe that every single person in Australia must respect the traditional owners of this land.
shit on for the dance, my flag. Community Radio, 855am. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. It's strange how all through the week Black Lives Matter came to the fore in nuanced ways, not just in your face ways like the demonstrations or the pushback by the state urging people to conform as a part of their civic duty the balance between our rights as people in a collective and the order demanded by an overarching power elite, posing as good citizen behaviour. A lot of tension there as the authoritarian and militarised police seem to be stamping their feet like antsy racehorses waiting for the command to move. I was listening to a Ben Harper album from the 90s and there it was, the song Like a King referring back to, of course, Martin Luther King, but also to Rodney King, 1992. Then walking up to Albert Park, I found the statue there of Peter Norman, 
who stood in solidarity with John Carlos at the 1968 Mexico Olympics. Black Lives Matter and the fight against systemic racism is sewn into the fabric, littered everywhere. And then, of course, Flaming Spear singing to Marcus Garvey, the uh, early uh, exponent of uh, black rights, uh, and an Australian writer, Kirsty Alexander. I was just reading a book by her called Half Moon Lake about a dis- disappeared child in 1913, Louisiana, white, ste- steeped in the perspectives of the white American establishments, casual acceptance of a six-year-old labourers and lynchings, while at the same time expecting their black servants to take care of them. Anyway, before we move on, just the issue of Black Lives Matter's unfair and blatant harassment and murderous intent against black citizens condoned by the state and culture of civilization. There's also the role of the police, the uneasiness between the two characterizations, one as a protector and one as a bully. So there were four incidents struck me this week about this particular issue. One, in America, police have arrested and assaulted journalists all over the country as they cover the protests against the police killing of George Floyd. There have been at least 300 incidents since May 26, and some of them are incredibly serious, like the majority committed by police, including more than 49 arrests, 192 assaults, 160 by police and 42 incidents of newsroom and equipment damage and this is according to the US press Freedom Tracker. These incidents have happened in 33 states throughout the country with the majority in Minneapolis, Washington, DC, Los Angeles, New York City, Louisville, Detroit, Denver and Philadelphia. And the abuses have affected independent journalists and those affiliated with a cross-section of news organisations. The majority were deliberate, unprovoked physical attacks on clearly identified journalists, including foreign journalists. CNN correspondent Omar Jimenez and his news crew were handcuffed and arrested in Minneapolis early in the morning on May the 29th. A freelance journalist who was shot by police with a rubber bullet in the eye in Minneapolis that same day is not likely to regain her vision. Another in Indiana also lost his eye. Police aggressively grabbed and detained a Huffington Post reporter in New York on May 30, despite his being clearly credentialed journalist. Others have been sprayed with tear gas, hit by rubber bullets and shoved to the ground. Also in America, after long nights of tear gas and rubber bullets, some protesters, news crews and medics in Minneapolis last weekend found themselves stranded. The tyres of their cars had been slashed by police, and this is proven by video. Officers punctured tyres in a Kmart parking lot on May the 30th and a highway overpass on May the 31st. Both areas briefly turned into police staging grounds near protest hotspots. The officers appear to be state troopers or county police. This is what appears on the video, though it's not clear from the videos. Neither the Minnesota State Patrol 
nor the Henningpin County Sheriff's Office responded to requests from the uh, online journal Mother Jones. The Minneapolis Police Department and Minnesota National Guard denied involvement. So there you go, the police. This is in America. And remember, we're looking at the, uh, you know, the, the two ideas, protector or bully. In Sydney, after the Sydney Black Lives Matter demonstration, it was David Ross, Rosser reported, I witnessed New South Wales police assaulting little girls, pepper spraying young kids and forcing people to break social distancing at Central Station. Their strategies that led to this was by surrounding with no exit and forcing safely distanced people and peaceful protesters into Central Station into a mosh pit of people where no one could move and yet they continued to push people, not being able to see there was nowhere to go. And then they, and then those people uh, were the protesters, tried to de-escalate the situation by stand, uh, kneeling on one knee and uh, chanting uh, no justice, no peace. And uh, the uh, police uh, pepper sprayed them. Go figure. In South Sudan, early in the morning of June the 3rd, a violent dispute broke out in a public bus park in the Sheraka neighbourhood of Juba between local residents and an armed military officers. Uh, the dispute was over a public toilet allegedly built on private land. It was reported that uh, the uh, lieutenant and six of his officers armed with pistols and AK-47s opened fire randomly, killing two men and a woman on the spot and injuring at least seven others. A fourth resident, injured by a gunshot, died on the way to the hospital. In response to the killings, approximately 1,000 civilians gathered in the market later that morning at 9.30am and marched to the police post. Witnesses who participated in the protest told Human Rights Watch that as the protesters approached the police, uh, the police post, a group of armed police and military officers shot live ammunition in the air and at the marches killing one man and injuring several others. The security forces arrested at least three protesters, witnesses said. Government security forces are supposed to protect civilians, not kill them, said Nayagoa Tutpur, South Sudan researcher at Human Rights Watch. Illegitimate power corruption of purpose, the same bent reality that gives awards for service to Indigenous Australians to perpetrators of abuse, awards given by people who actively are party to the same abuse. Tony Abbott received an Order of Australia partially for his contributions to Indigenous Australians this week. Indigenous X. An online independent Indigenous newspaper outlined their assessment of his contribution as follows. In honour of our former Prime Minister for Indigenous Affairs being awarded and whatever it was called, we have pulled together some of his more memorable contributions in no particular order. Cut 
$500 million from the Indigenous Affairs budget. He was the Prime Minister that had a vision, one of police stations and more mines, but that money had to come from somewhere, right? Mining companies cannot possibly pay fair prices for land and be taxed for what resources they take from the land. So the budget had $42 million cut from National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island Legal Service. He cut to funding for Vibe Australia. There was $160 million cut from Indigenous health programs, a further $3.5 million cut to the Torres Strait Regional Authority, $15 million earmarked for the National Congress of Australia's First People was cancelled and there was a $9.5 million cut to Indigenous language support. There were also devastating cuts to other frontline services that address displacement and disenfranchisement. The prison industry, on the other hand, was given an increase in funding, almost as though more people in jail was seen as a better use of funds and avenues to keeping people out of jail. He created the Indigenous Advancement Strategy. Following over half a billion cut from the Indigenous Affairs Budget, he created the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, which was sold as making funding more effective. In effect, it further disempowered frontline community services, preferenced organisations that agreed to support recognise and failed to deliver on promises. An audit in 2019 would find five years after the introduction of the IAS, the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, the Department is in the early stages of implementing an evaluation framework. The IAS was administered by Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Nigel Scullion, who would also later be criticised for spending $560 million in his last few weeks in the job in the lead-up to the election and for approved projects against departmental advice. Abbott claimed there was nothing but bush here before 1788. As we look about this glorious city, as we see the extraordinary development, it's hard to think that back in 1788 it was nothing but bush. But anyway, he got a gong. Let's give the last word for this subject this morning to Maine White from his monologue, from his play, City of Gold. I'm always going to be your black friend, aren't I? That's all anybody ever sees. I'm never just an actor. I'm always an Indigenous actor. Hey, I love repping, but I don't hear old Joe Bloggs over here being called white Anglo-Saxon actor, bloody blah I'm always in the black show, the black play. I'm always the angry one, the tracker, the drinker, the thief. But sometimes I just want to be seen for my talent, not my skin colour, not my race. I hate being a token, a box to tick, part of some diversity angle. Oh, what are you whinging for? You're not a real one anyway. You're only part. Well, what part then? My foot? My arm? My leg? You're the black or you're not. You want to do a DNA test? Come suck my blood. How are we to move forward if we dwell on the past? That's your privilege. You get to ask that question. As we can dance and we're good at sport. You go to weddings, we go to funerals. No, 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 you're not your ancestors. It's not your fault you have white skin, but you do benefit from it. You can be okay. I have to be exceptional. I mess up, I'm done. There's no path back for me. There's no road to redemption. Being black and successful comes at a cost. You take a hit whether you like it or not. Because you want your blacks quiet and humble. You can't stand up, you have to sit down. Ask the brother boy Adam Goods. 
A kid says some racist shit, not ignorant, racist. Corner Blackfire and Ape, come on, man. We was flora and fauna before 1967. No, actually, we didn't even exist at all. But he got it. This was a kid. This was a learning moment. He taught that kid a lesson. But did they like that? A black man standing up for himself? Nah, they didn't like that. You shut up, boy. You stay in your lane. Anytime you touch a ball, we're going to boo your ass. So he showed him a scary black, throwing imaginary spears and shit. And did they like that? Oh, no, no, no. They didn't like that. Every arena, every stadium, they booed him. It's because the way the flog plays football. Bullshit. No one booed him the way they booed him until he stood up and said something about race. The second he stood up, everybody came out of the woodworks to give him shit. And what, he's supposed to sit there and take it? Well, I'll tell you right now, Adam Goods has taken it. His whole life he's taken it. I've taken it. No matter what, no matter how big, how small, I'll get some racist shit on a weekly basis and I'll take it. You know, it used to be that in your face, your bung, your black dog coon kind of shit. Gonna chase it down the ditch with my baseball bat, skinhead shit, when I was 14 years old. But nah, we come forward, we progressive, we're gonna give you that small, subtle shit. The shit that's always been there, but it's not that obvious in your face shit. It's that, oh, no, we can't be seen to be racist kind of shit. Security guard, following me around the store, asking to search my bag. They're walking up to the counter first and being served second or third or last kind of shit. They're hailing down a cab and watching it slow down to look at my face and then drive off. More than once, more than twice, more than once, twice on any one occasion. Yeah, that shit I'll get weekly. Sometimes I'll get days in a row if I'm really lucky. And that's the kind of shit that I'm letting them think they're getting away with. Because to be honest, I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered teaching their ignorant asses on a daily basis. I don't have the energy or the enthusiasm. It's exhausting and I like living my life. But then on occasion, when you caught me on a bad day where I don't feel like taking it, I'll give you that angry black you've been asking for and I'll tear you in, you asshole. Not because of that one time, because of my whole life. At least Adam danced and they still pissed and moaned. But it's not about that one time, it's about all those times. And seeing us as animals and not as people, that shit needs to stop. Black deaths in custody, that shit needs to stop. I don't want to be what you want me to be. I want to be what I want to be. Never trade your authenticity for approval. Be crazy. Take a risk. Be different. Offend your family. Call them out. Silence is violence. Complacency is complacency. I don't want to be quiet. I don't want to be humble. I don't want to sit down. East Gippsland Dispatch. Voices and stories of community and resilience from East Gippsland. Welcome to another episode of East Gippsland Dispatch. My name is Fiona. Today we have a recording made by Catherine of Wayne Burnett, who talks about how the East Gippsland bushfires last January affected his newly opened business, Red Bluff Bluers, in Lakes Entrance, East Gippsland. No, we haven't been burnt out. Our farm was half burnt out. We have a farm at Combined Barns. It was half burnt, destroyed. But as far as our business goes here in Lakes Entrance, we were able to get our tap room opened up just in time for New Year's Eve. That was the first time we had our licensing. We had to go through town planning and so on. And it took a long time. So we, we thought that time frame to try and get it up and running for the summer period to try and make the most of the, the tourism and then we started up new year's eve new year's eve was a great day we had a lot of people in and then we got the notification on the phone to evacuate and new year's day we had to close down for about two weeks so needless to say it hasn't been all that flash and then 40,000 people turned into 2,000 people and everyone's gone home 
So unfortunately, uh, it'd be nice to be able to get the series back, but I think the I think the ship has sailed, uh, uh, so to speak. I think uh, it's going to be hard to get the tourism back until later this year. I think, uh, hopefully, drum up some business and good to be able to do a few things. We're doing a few functions here as well. We've got feast on Easter's feast on East people. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, so there's a group of businesses and families and people in the in the local industry, in the local area in here in Lake Entrance. They try and at least every fortnight go to a venue, they'll book a venue out. So there's about 70 odd people and it's continuing to grow. Where they'll book a venue out and they'll come and enjoy the night, spend all the money in that venue that night and then fortnight's time they'll go off to the next one and that venue's obviously you know, had a good night then instead of being quiet. So yeah, the venue's normally booked out and on days that would normally be quiet to help you know, with the, the, the turnover for these companies. So it's working out pretty good. For ourselves this time, we're going to do, do it in the venue here. We've got Lakes Pizza and Fish and Chips are going to supply all the catering. So they're going to be bringing the pizzas up. So we're helping them bring in the food and they'll supply that. And they'll obviously get paid for their food. And then hopefully we'll get some bar, bar work as well and tell some beer on the night. That should be good. Hmm. How are you managing, you know, there's been a downturn because of the fires. What, what's your attempt to bring your business back? Uh, look, the, the most we can do is I think now from our point of view, we want to try and put on functions. So we know that the local community can only do so much. I think if we put on a function, maybe we have music here, we might be able to have food trucks here as a, as a festival, mini festival, maybe some beer festivals here as well. And we'll try and do things once a month just to try and help bring people into town. If you bring people into town to the venue, they'll stay motels and the caravan parks and they'll come here, they'll spend some money here in the brewery, they'll go down to town and they'll spend some money in the fish and chip shops, cafes and so on. And I think that's, for us, that's the best way and probably the only way while the tourism's not here. We've got the band. We've got uh, Chris Taylor. He's coming in on uh, Saturday night. He's from one of the teachers there at St. Brendan's Primary School. He's coming in with a vocalist on Saturday night. We have a local fellow, a, a Ross, a DJ. He's a, he DJs here on a couple of occasions so far and all free of charge of course and he wants to do his bit to help out as well and we've got a few volunteers that are helping us doing some fundraising as well we did a lot of fundraising we did some for the cfa we did a beer for bushfire relief about three weeks ago that generated over nine thousand dollars in one day and all that was donated to the bush gippsland bushfire relief as well as the local fire brigade down here by doing that for us it's about getting the publicity for us more so than making any money out of it we won't make any money on the day because a lot of it's donated as long as we cover our costs, and for us it's for getting publicity, and next time people come back into the Lakes Entrance, hopefully they'll remember us, that we're here, and hopefully visit then. Do you pay the artists? We can pay the artists. Most of the artists have been, so far, have been volunteering their time, which has been fantastic. So we haven't had to pay anybody yet. <laughs> a few beers here and there, maybe a couple of pizzas here and there, but other than that, it's all good. So. so are you still looking for people? The reason I'm saying this is I've got a friend in Malakuta, and his place was burnt down in Malakuta. Oh, really? And he's a musician. Yes. Professional. He's just on tour at the moment, and I'll sure. tell him to come and Absolutely. speak I've, to you. We've got a couple of I've people got a there. Card. Do that. Yeah, I'd yeah. love the card. Yeah. Um, because we we want to try and do something once a month. If we can have, we can generate some something for people to come and visit. If they're locals, they can come and visit. If they're coming coming from out of town and they can see that the town's struggling, they'll want to try and spend the money in the town, and they'll hopefully come out here as well, uh, spend some time here and chat to other people, maybe chat to the locals and hopefully uh, sort of help each other out. What drove you to get into this? Back in 2017, I had a nice little home brew system, the complex here that we're in now, the venue. Always had a passion for the craft beer industry, as a lot of people do. 
I had a home brew system here and I was brewing while I was doing other work elsewhere. I had businesses going at the time, one time. I had my friends, people that we knew, they were always enjoying the beers that I made in the small system. And then basically grew from there. I was either, either buy a, a bigger home brew system to cater for all my mates or we go a commercial system. We already had the facility here set up, so we made the made the decision and, and we thought Lakes Entrance needs a, some manufacturing. Craft beer industry in Lakes Entrance would be great for tourists. Hopefully get this place on the map and bring more people into town. Through the names of their beers, we got Cuda Kolsch, which I'm doing today. We have a Glasshouse Pale Ale. We have a Three Lakes Tropical Ale, which is named after Lake Bunga, Lakes Entrance, Lake Tyres. We have, a, we have a milk stout, which is called a uh, Cowabunga milk stout, named after Bunga. So we thought we'll, uh, we'll try and bring it into town and try and help out the best we can with our names of their beers and, and do the right thing and hopefully it'll make a business of it. So. What's your favourite music? What kind of sound effects do you think would be good to accompany this podcast? Trickling water? <laughs> I'm thinking Aussie beer songs. <laughs> of course. Oh, I can be some oh, well, maybe. Um, yeah, no yeah, probably no beer, or you can be on a Australian, Australian crawl, Aussie crawl. He's oh, yeah. in the 80s, and I think you know, that brings back memories for me as being in the beach and on the coastal village, that, the place that we are. Yeah, <laughs> the Dates for now. That was a fantastic song, but yeah, that and uh, yeah, probably no beer. It's always a good Did one. Swearing in it, so it's a good song to be able to have in the tap room. <laughs> Oh, it's right. You're aiming to have a loop so that you just keep, no, keep yeah, we, yeah. the beer song. We do have our own uh, tap room, basically music list there. We, yes. we sort of keep rolling on them. We've got a bit to get to it as we pick up more songs. So it's pretty good. And then we, we try and generate as many Australian songs into that as we can. I like that Australian music. It's fantastic. So I drink A weak solidarity bricky team listener when, as governments relax COVID restrictions in the interests of the economy, they admit this could lead to a new upsurge in cases, but the case for the economy is more urgent. We put to the Chamber of Profits, would it accept the blame for the victims of any new outbreak? Uh, certainly not. Any new outbreak will be totally down to irresponsible protesters ignoring the scientific advice not to protest, not to observe social distancing. To make matters worse, they ignored big supremo scuttlebeam Morlashson, who, backed up by so responsible a minister for stuffing up the economy, Matthias Rotten Tuva, sensibly pointed out that, yes, yes, they had a right to protest. He supported that right, but... Oh, how they were insulting those who couldn't visit their dear old mum on Mother's Day, who couldn't honour the honourable dead on trained killer glorification day, who couldn't attend the funerals of their loved ones. U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor nastiness, cloaked in Mr. Nice Guy camouflage. The protesters insulting true blue Aussies across the land should at least have the courtesy to self-isolate for 14 days, the great leaders advised, to avoid giving all those decent, non-protesting, couldn't-give-a-stuff true blue Aussies the virus. 
while on the good news front, footy's back and 44 blokes will be tackling and bumping and bashing the proverbial out of each other for a couple of hours of big business that used to be sport and leisure. Blood and sweat rolling on the ground amid those two integral parts of men's sport, the spit and the nose blow. Uh, So they'll have to self-isolate for 14 days after every game. Of course not, but there's no comparison. And the workers, you insist, have to go back to work. Clearly, they'll have to self-isolate for 14 days after every day's work. Don't be absurd. Again, there's no comparison to irresponsible protesters. But it's a great employment opportunity because you'd have to have 14 times the normal workforce. Real job creation. Oh dear, he's gone purple. As the authorities prepare to find the Black Lives Matter organisers, like they find protests as supporting no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people, COVID has prevented them declaring many crimes a crime, postponing yet again introducing recommendations of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Con Mission into the banks of the financial sector. Well, they've only had two or three years, including charges against a number of respectable practitioners. Just how many high-profile financial financial practitioners have been charged again, uh, apparently charging poor bankers with ripping off and forcing them to rip off not quite so blatantly would be a hell threat. Thankfully, as compensation for these activities not being declared illegal and responsible bankers and financial gurus not being charged, the big banks have pocketed about $200 million from government largesse during the health crisis, and directors' disclosure rules have been lifted. Apparently, disclosure is also a health threat. Oh, and there's new restrictions on class actions against boardrooms, a, a clear health threat. So let's make sure those protest organisers have the book thrown at them because they are the real health threat. To prove Black Lives Matter, the Western True Blue Aussie government has approved an application by bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, the big Aussie, to blow up a few more indigenous sites because the terra nullius people have no rights over terra nullius sacred sites. But bloody huge polluter says it respects the terra nullius non-people and land, but just not enough not to blow it up. Following Rio Tato, the planet wiping out 40,000 plus years of history. Well, it's only terra nullius history, not real history. But then a former Rio big supremo, Sam Walsh, is now head of the True Blue Aussie Mint. And good news, he still respects Black Lives Matter because they buy gold from Golden Valley, a Papua New Guinea gold miner, which... Okay, has been convicted of pollution, particularly with mercury and standover tactics and child labour, but goodness me, he's providing jobs for those children. And okay, the Supremo of Golden Valley was given 16 years two years ago for beating his helicopter pilot to death and then released a year later, but at least he's not an illegal protester. And the company said, well, families like to work together, so the children just love working with their parents amid the mercury and other chemicals. So Sam maintains Rio Tinto, the planet's commitment to Black Lives Matter. A market research study into public attitudes to the lockdown and ongoing easing of restrictions found, among other things, that a third of workers are worried about losing their jobs or having their hours cut. But their concerns are nothing compared to those described as feeling the most concerned about the economy, those investing in property and the stock market. 
Oh, don't our hearts bleed for the poor dears. Don't our hearts go out to them. Still some good news on that front. No, that's an understatement. Exciting, exciting news on that front. Two of them, two of our favourites from the Trubler Aussie Industry Profits Group, Innes Will Cost the Workers and Tim Piper the Profits, were honoured by Her Most Gracious Majesty this week, along with academic economist Ian Harper on about workers' greed, who regularly receives government funding to write reports and recommendations on how to staunch worker greed. All three presumably for services too, making the filthy rich filthy richer. And warm, warm congratulations to them from 3CR and the week that was. And how can we forget the highest honour in the land to former big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses. Congratulations, Tiny. The timing impeccable as the groaning national health system attempts to respond to a national crisis shackled only by the massive funding cuts initiated by Tiny because he knew all that money on public health was money stolen from the super-efficient private health industry to which he transferred the public purse. Thoroughly deserved for services too, getting rid of the public sector. It's hard to believe his own electorate got rid of him, although it gave him time to have the knife wound in the back treated properly and the blood washed away. Oh, and the helicopter kid, Bronnie Bash up the workers, also copped an honour for God knows what, probably for services to herself by keeping her bum on the plush seat for well over two decades, her only achievement I can think of, if we don't count expense rorts. She modestly declared her honour would be an example and encouragement for young girls. I say to young girls, the earlier you can get your bum on a plush seat, the longer you can bludge on the public purse. On great contributions to the public discourse, Donald's a real problem for this segment. Which of his gems to highlight, compounded by the fact we're now recording this on Thursday mornings due to the obvious circumstances, leaving two more whole days of his ravings we can't include? But he hit a high when he declared an older person had deliberately fallen over when confronted by a few gentle cops and deliberately lay on the ground bleeding from a head wound while the cops gently stepped over him because he was an anti-fascist, the worst imaginable threat to public order, opposing the rights of fascists to free speech, to know and show that black lives don't matter. Hail, trample the poor! Although Donald was prepared to upset his fascist constituency by declaring he had done more for blacks than any big supremo since Abraham Lincoln which in US of terms isn't saying a lot, but it, it does show his innate modesty all over again that he conceded that someone else did something as well as he can. And given Donald's dedication to accuracy and truth, there can be no doubt. And Donald paid tribute to George Floyd's memory by declaring George would be looking down and thrilled at the latest US of unemployment figures, 13 to 14%, millions and millions of people. Best figures ever, ever. They would make George happy, he said, although I would have thought George would be a lot happier not having to look down to still be walking the streets of Minneapolis, although that's what got him into Donald's looking down world in the first place, showing Donald is a true believer in the dear baby Jesus. Well, he loves to stand outside church brandishing a Bible, and he knows it's a sin to tell a lie, which leads me to an observation. 
As well as brandishing the Bible in front of the Episcopal Church, Donald then went to some Catholic monument to John Paul II, standing with Melania staring at nothing in particular for a purpose never explained. St. J.P. II, the monument boasted and must admit, I'd forgotten that arch-conservative supporter of the filthy rich was now a saint, or maybe it never registered, but then... I thought, given that based on the beliefs of those who believe in such things, that that old enemy of anything progressive is in heaven, and Donald would assume he'll end up there, and then there's the highest honour in the country, tiny a bit more for the bosses, who knows, that's where he's headed, then heaven is the last place I'd want to be. Although finally, Donald would insist he swap with God or God swap with him. Make heaven great again. Best God ever, ever making it even more unbearable. Paradise lost. My idea of hell, just like listening to The Week That Was. Good morning. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Last week, we updated you on the people fighting to protect the bush at Big Pat's Creek near Warburton. Now the ABC Gippsland is reporting protests by a coalition of traditional owners and environmentalists have forced a halt to native timber logging at Seven Coops in Victoria's Gippsland and Central Highlands. So clearly, the Victorian government's ruse of saying no more old-growth logging by 2030 is just not going to cut it, if you excuse the pun. The other issue we broached was the future of the Preston market. There is concern that the market will be demolished and relocated on the site to accommodate the building of 14-storey apartment blocks. I went down to Darabin Council meeting and discovered the frustration of dealing with council. First we hear from the Mayor dealing with questions unnoticed and then from a couple of ratepayers who wanted some clarification. For the sake of clarification, will council please answer yes or no to the following questions? Does the motion passed keep open the option of demolishing, relocating and rebuilding the market? And two, is relocating the Preston market to a new position still one of the options being considered by Council? Thank you, Ms Paletti, for this question. Council doesn't get to make the decision on whether or not the market will move. That's up to the State Government and the landowner. What Council can decide is what it tells the BPA is the most important to think about when they set the planning rules. The advice we've had from experts is that there are real risks if the market is moved, particularly to the architectural heritage of the building, which is very important. The advice also indicates real risks with the ongoing viability of the market and to the existing traders if parts of the market are not moved or expanded, which is also very important. We haven't given up hope that there's a solution where all of these risks can be balanced where both the architecture and the traders are protected. That's what we asked the VPA to do on the 18th of May 2020, to protect both. We called for both a heritage overlay and a contractual agreement with the landowner. Once the VPA comes to us with a plan, we will be able to say whether we think they go far enough to meet Council's clear objectives to protect what's most important. Council's objectives are very clear that moving the market could only be supported if the heritage experts say that it won't harm the heritage of the market building. Ms Pauletti has asked a second question. Council in the Chamber have claimed that there are many views from the community that do not support the continuation of the market in situ. Is this secret Council business or will the release 
Will you release the data of Darwin community members who support the relocation, hence ultimate destruction or demolition of the market? In response, all of the community engagement for the Preston market has been done by engagement specialists and their reports are made fully public. I repeat, all those reports are fully public. The most recent round of engagement was carried out in May and June last year by RPS consultants. Issues around market character and urban design were looked at in depth. The report from this phase of the engagement concludes. Feedback also shows that maintaining the intangible essence of the market was an important consideration for participants. For the vast majority of participants, these intangibles create the value of the market. This includes the range and diversity of offerings, affordability, providing a welcoming and inclusive space that everyone can enjoy, having a range of stakeholders, its cultural diversity, and its authentic grunge aesthetic. For this majority, the location of the market is not a concern. We also know that there are people within the community who passionately believe the market should remain exactly where it sits in the site. I have personally heard both from community members who want the market to remain essentially unchanged and in the same position, and I have heard possibly from even more community members who would be very happy if the market were to be rebuilt somewhere on that same site. This is complex, and I want to acknowledge that there are a range of views. There is no right and wrong. It's a discussion for us to have as a community, and I think what we all want is to guarantee that the market will be there thriving and viable and dynamic and wonderful, just as it is today in 50 years' time. Thank you. Um, I have questions from Mr Erlinson. Um, there will be an opportunity. I've got, I've got to go to the questions on notice first, and then I'll come to community members who haven't submitted. Um, so Mr Erlinson is not here tonight. I'll read his question. A number of councillors in the chamber have made public statements to the effect that the VPA will make the decision about the future of the Preston market. On its website, the VPA states that it works in partnership with council. Would you like to correct and clarify that the VPA does not make decisions about the future of Preston market, but in partnership with council prepares recommendations and planning proposals for the Minister for Planning, who has the final say? Uh, Mr Erlinson, thank you for the question, and um, that final statement that you've made is not correct, and I will clarify that. The VPA is the planning authority for the Preston Market. For this particular site, the VPA were directed to work in consultation with Council, the developer, the community and the traders. Council has been advocating strongly to the VPA for what's important about the market to be protected. Ultimately though, the decisions about what is and isn't in the planning control sit with the VPA alone and the planning minister will get to have the final say on what gets approved. Mr Erlinson has continued with uh, another question. While the VPA is currently preparing planning amendments that may include heritage controls, this does not preclude the development of a separate heritage overlay to sit alongside and to complement planning provisions. Thank you, Mr Erlinson, in response. The VPA is the responsible authority, which means that only they can decide whether or not to include a heritage overlay. Council doesn't have the power to apply its own separate heritage overlay. The VPA can choose to include a heritage overlay as part of the planning controls or do a heritage overlay as a separate amendment. Neither of these is stronger or weaker than the other in a planning sense. It's purely a procedural matter as there is no difference in the outcome of the heritage overlay. 
and Mr Erlinson's third question, is asked that a heritage overlay could include further controls and protections from demolition for the Preston market. Mr Erlinson. The heritage overlay is a tool that requires a planning permit for demolition or redevelopment. It sets out what is significant as defined by heritage experts and written into the planning controls. A heritage overlay and a statement of significance cannot stipulate that a building must not be demolished at all. There are no planning tools that could do this. The way heritage overlay would work is that in future years, after the planning controls have been reviewed and amended, the developer will put in a proposal. In their proposal, they would have to show council how it doesn't negatively impact on the heritage significance. Um, I've got a question from Marion Harper. Ms Harper's not here, so I'll read that question. At the ordinary council meeting of May the 18th, 2020, council unanimously carried the following resolution. That council resolves to invite renowned expert on markets, Dr Jane Stanley, to address councillors and relevant officers as soon as possible at a council briefing and provides Dr Stanley with all the relevant materials and reports, including the Preston Market Heritage Review, RBA Architects and Heritage Consultants, March 2020 report, Preston Market Options Review, MGS Architects, March 2020, and the Statement of Significance, before the council makes any further decisions on its future position on the Preston Market. Given Council was asked to take a briefing from Jane Stanley in early 2019 through the Mayor and CEO, why, has the why was the presentation delayed to the point of non-inclusion in the last Preston Market update? Why did Council go ahead with further decisions on the future of the Preston Market and contradict the undertaking given in the motion? And given statements made in the Chamber by a number of councillors, we would like to know why councillors, particularly those who claim to make evidence-based decisions, are so offended when asked by the constituents to consider evidence from experts. Um, thank you, Ms Harper, for this question. I'm assuming the request you're referring to for councillors to hear from Dr Jane Stanley was the question asked by Ms Paletti at the 27th of April 2020 council meeting. Uh, not 2019 as written in the question. The presentation from Dr Stanley took place on the 25th of May council briefing. Whilst we're happy to hear from Dr Stanley on your recommendation, we did not seek any reason to see any reason to delay council feedback to the BPA on its objectives at this important stage of the process. If we had waited to hear from Dr Stanley, council would have had to delay providing this update on matters such as heritage report and urban design report and risk the objectives not being fully considered during the preparation of planning controls. There has been no request to hear from an expert put forward by the community that has not been followed up by council. Both Dr Stanley and the original architect for the Preston Market have attended council briefings following requests from data. Um, that brings me to the end of the questions received prior to the meeting. I now invite any community members who have questions to come up to the lectern. Um, yes, please come up. Hello, my name is Darren Delaportis, uh, Arabian resident, William Street. Um, I have a couple of questions. Uh, first one would be, why did you personally vote yes in favour of us getting rid of the market? There was no vote in favour of getting rid of the market, so I think that that's been um, a significant miscommunication and misinformation. So Council voted at its last meeting to ask for a heritage overlay to protect the heritage significance of the market. That was the last motion that we passed um, on the 18th of May. I might refer to a, refer to a statement that's... Uh 
Mr. Greco made on the Darabin Council Facebook page, where he referred to something along the lines of a vote being passed to the market's demolition. So I can be corrected if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, we've basically voted to have the market uh, be demolished for apartments. And then in the statement, if I interpret it correctly, there was the request which he made to have that 10 to 12 storey limitation, which you, if I remember correctly, advised me you didn't support because he didn't have supporting documentation from the Victorian Planning Department. So there was a robust debate at the council meeting on the 18th of May. After that time, there was a great deal of misinformation which was conveyed to the community about the nature of the debate and the nature of decisions that were made. I want to be very clear that at that meeting, council voted for a heritage overlay or to, to pursue a heritage overlay, which is to advocate to the BPA for that. Council did not vote in favour of a number of alternative positions put forward by Councillor Greco. Um, there are various and different reasons why Council may not have voted for those, but the effect of Council's vote of what Council did vote for was that we are advocating for heritage protection for the market. At the previous planning meeting, Council voted to reject the continuation of a planning permit that had been issued by VCAT for 10 and 14 storey buildings on the site, Council rejected the extension of that planning permit. There will be buildings built on the site. That has been a given and that has been the case for over a decade now. So we know that the site will have some change. The debate that is happening is in relation to the nature of the change. And I think you heard from the previous question that um, there are many views those views are neither right nor wrong. They are just different views that this community can and is able to debate. And ultimately, Council has determined that there are a number of features that we want to protect in relation to the market. We've heard very clearly how precious this market is to our community. I shop there myself. And the things that people love and want to protect about the market include the wide walkways and airy feel, the social space, the mix of different stalls, the diversity, the multiculturalism, and some heritage features of the building. We are working to make sure that we protect all of those things in a way that also ensures the viability of the traders. My next question sort of links in with the market and is sort of separate to my own property. So I might have mentioned I have a property on William Street and originally, I just wanted to do it up nice and pretty, put a couple of units in the backyard, one to my mum, one to the brother, have the family, live on the same block, thought it would have been nice. Uh, originally that didn't seem very feasible because the front property was too big, so I asked if I could move the front property to the rear of the property or even to another block on the same street, maybe six or seven blocks down, a vacant block. And I was told that that's not how it works, it doesn't happen that way. Moving it to the rear of my property, I can kind of say, okay, because even if it faces a laneway, it doesn't really get a lot of exposure, people don't <coughs> to enjoy it that much. But even having the property professionally moved a few blocks over, maintained that it's... I'll, I'll ask you to get to the question because... It's coming up. The question has to be brief. It's coming up. How, it's just a comment to say that 
I think that should be used as precedent for when we consider the heritage overlay or the significance of the market, because if a market which services thousands of people daily is less important than a property which has, or a precinct, William Street precinct, which has maybe hundreds of people a month or a year come through it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a contradiction in my eyes, is the first thing. And then the second one, which is the actual question, I feel that should probably be a change made to the process in which we use to appeal to council to build pro properties or changes to our land. Um, prime example would be... Um, I'll, I'll stop you there because um, I think we've gone beyond sort of allowable time for a question. Um, what I'm proposing to do is take on notice the question in relation to your property and the heritage controls in William Street and get someone to follow up with you in relation to that. I would say that there is nothing that connects what happens at the market site with what happens in William Street. So they, they are two separate issues from a planning point of view. I hear that you, you would like to make a link, but I can assure you from a planning point of view, those are completely separate matters. And I'll get um, one of the officers to get your contact details so that they can follow up in relation to your questions about the planning controls in William Street. Sure. I'd like to add one final thing for the other one. It, it's, um, we've gone over, sorry. Sorry, our time for questions is finished. Um, Could I make one statement, just given that some members had eight to 12 minutes of talk time? I think I've only had about three. I'd keep it under. Sorry, I'm, I'm very sorry. Our meeting takes place according to the governance local laws. So there are quite strict meeting procedure rules. If you have a further question, I would ask that you write that down Unfortunately, I didn't see the clock and that we've actually gone over time, which means we can't extend. So um, we're in a difficult position now and I'll seek some advice in relation to that. Um, can I ask if I may just a point of uh, whether you can exercise your discretion to extend it? Councillor Greco, I'll check that out. If, if I have discretion, I'll May I specifically ask him, please don't interrupt me when I'm speaking, I specifically ask him, whether you can exercise your discretion in extending the uh, uh, question time. Thank you. I'd kindly request if we could vote for another 90 seconds. Are you ready? Uh, I would use your discretion for a couple of a minute. Well, just for a minute, I would use your discretion to extend it. I'm getting further advice, I'm sorry. Our governance law is very strict and doesn't actually leave me a great deal of discretion. So I'm going to actually check out what the governance local law says. While you're looking that up, I might just make a statement. <laughs> With um, please, please respect our processes. Um, I know it's frustrating, but I'm... I'm dealing with the governance local law issues, so That's fine. I, I want to do it justice. Okay. There's no point in asking a question when I'm not listening. It's okay. I might just make a statement to my mother while you do that, if that's okay. Through you, Mayor Annie, so um, the local law is very clear. It says public question time will not exceed 30 minutes in duration unless extended by resolution, in which case it may be only extended for one period of 30 minutes. 
Um, it is the reason why it's important that um, preambles are not provided and people to ask questions. Uh, so it's not possible for the Mayor to use discretion in this instance. Um, I would encourage you to, so uh, the General Manager of the Planning um, Area is just there, Rachel Olivier, so she's very happy to um, take your details and talk to you about issues that you've got to raise tonight. Thanks. No worries. Um, thank you, councillors. We'll continue on with the meeting tonight. Um, item six is petitions. There are no petitions. To know what you think about this business about the Preston market. Uh, if you're going to say what's important to the area, I know that nobody will miss our whole street of houses. I think most people would voluntarily say sell our homes to the developers and Same build another market. apartment complex behind the two enormous ones, which they've already got rather than clogging up our market space. When people say, yeah, we want to see changes to the market, they want to see improvements, they want to see more of the same, or maybe they want variances, but they don't want the market taken away. Like, who in Because I think what they're talking about is dismantling it and putting it somewhere, somewhere else. else. Yes. No, which is yes. completely off mark. Like, what, a, what she said to me is complete bull, in my opinion. You can't say that... What applies to the market doesn't apply to your home. My house is located, what, maybe a kilometre? And it has very from, specific yeah. things you're allowed yeah. and not yeah. allowed yeah. to do. Yeah. My house is from the 1910s. And if they say to me, oh, we want to keep the market and keep some of its key features which appeal to the public, why don't I just knock down my bloody house, put a bullnose veranda and paint some old school bricks on it or, or use some old school bricks and keep it there? Why don't we do that with the whole damn street, paint a nice pretty little heritage appeal around it and then say, oh... It's still heritage. It's not the same thing. You can't break a plate and glue it back together and say it's the same. It doesn't work like that. If they think that keeping a market... If they think that putting apartments in an area where you've got not one, not two, not three, but four huge apartment complexes is justified, one, who the hell is pushing forward on this? Is this just so they can get more rates? I don't understand the logic in it because I saw on the agenda there was something to... Uh, dilute the traffic around certain areas but you're trying to dump one a whole ton of people in an area which doesn't need them two you're obstructing heritage views a property laws for my heritage property specifically from what i understand say that if you're standing across the street from my property and i want to build anything in the back it is not allowed to be visible at all and you're telling me you want to build buildings in front of heritage overlaid markets which has more significance to the area, even though it's not as old. It's the value that it has. It's the old saying, you can fall in love in a day and be in a loveless marriage for 20 years. That's what applies to the market. You've got people that come from all over and they're going to say to me, oh, yeah, 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 we're doing what's in the best interest of the market, but how can you say you want what's best for the market when you're not fighting to keep it tooth and nail and to keep things which are going to pull away from it as well? Like, They've already approved. You've got on High Street at the end of Murray Road, uh, Murray Road and William Street, you've got two apartment complexes. You've got the Quest ones where they've already removed the Preston Food Truck Park. And then on the corner of Spring and Murray, is it? They've got another one. You've got four huge apartment complexes. If they want to put more, cool, approve them to do more, but approve them to put things which are going to add value to the market and to the community, not just to some guy's pocket and to the council's pocket. What happens when you put some more apartments? Cool, you have a few more people in there, but... What happens when you make a market more appealing to draw in people? Make it a night market. Do more. Don't get rid of it. 
they're devaluing the area. I personally think they're devaluing the area by oh, putting yeah. so many apartment buildings Absolutely. up. The traffic, the noise, the hassle, and everybody's uh, properties will be devalued because of that. People will start moving away from these apartment blocks well, not only that, that and reducing the value of the properties. Well, when we were younger, we weren't we weren't even comfortable. Like my grandparents used to reuse cling wrap; they were so like trying to get by. And when you would go to that market. You'd get two family pizzas and you get dessert for five people for under 20 bucks with yeah, change. Yeah, and you're yeah. telling me that lining somebody's pockets is better than giving the community, especially those struggling, those who are getting money from Centrelink and other avenues, from giving them more opportunity to become self-sufficient and independent. There's stories about people who wouldn't sell premium real estate and they would run dirt cheap businesses out of there just to service the community. And rather than giving more people the opportunity to do that, they're saying, oh, Let's put more apartments. That'd be great. You are on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. We finish off the program with a word with Maz from Save Our Scene campaign. During the COVID-19 shutdown, music venues from the Forum Theatre to the Tote have been brought to the edge of permanent closure and they have banded together to get assistance from the government. This is what he had to say. Thanks very much for talking to me. Can you give us an idea of uh, what's been happening for uh, music venues in uh, Melbourne in particular and in other parts of the state? Um, I guess uh, nothing has been happening (laughs) Uh, since the uh, coronavirus outbreak started and nothing is looking like it is going to happen for quite some time and you know Melbourne is probably considered to be the live music capital of the world and we're all terrified that our uh, our, our music ecology is under a uh, an existential threat the uh, you've uh, put together an open letter um, uh, directed to the uh, Victorian government asking for assistance uh, what kind of assistance are you talking about? Um, I think we need a, uh, uh, you know, a short-term uh, financial package that will stop venues from shutting down permanently in the short term. Um, we need a safe and a balanced plan and a roadmap that has clear markers and timings on it um, that tell us when we're going to be back at full capacity because at the moment we actually have no idea what's going on. Um, I couldn't tell you when I'd be able to open a, a couple of my venues and there's other venues in town that we just we just simply don't know. Um, and, of course, we will need assistance in kickstarting once we're open. You know, confidence has been severely diminished in the in, in pub, in, along with a, a whole range of other, other measures that we, we may need. Now, one of the reasons for why this is so significant is the music scene in Melbourne. I, I was uh, interested to note that uh, you've said that uh, Melbourne has more live venues than any other capital city in the world. This is pretty interesting. It is. And, you know, it's the result of a, a you know multitude of factors that have happened in Melbourne over a very long period of time, you know, not least, you know, government support, but, you know, uh, there's been a, a great deal of uh, people who have put a great deal of work over the years into the ecology that we have here. And by ecology, I don't just mean the venues, I mean the community radio stations, the universities, the teachings, you know, the whole infrastructure and network that has produced the live music scene that we have here, including a large number of music venues. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of venues that are already hitting the wall. Yeah, well, I was interested in the list because the list is pretty important. Uh, there's uh, the forum. Uh, theatre is on the list as well as Festival Hall but also places like the Tote and the Old Bar and uh, also places yep. like the Butterfly Club 
uh, and uh, also places not in Melbourne. Um, these are, as you say, these are iconic venues, and uh, also they bring to Victoria $1.42 billion over one year, you were saying. Yeah, um, I'd say that the contribution the live music uh, sector makes to Victoria is massive. And it seems to, and it feels certainly on our end as though it's uh, marginally undervalued at the moment because um, we're not getting the, you know, the support that the building industry has just had announced. Uh, for example, $25,000 for a renovation program sounds great, um, but there are a number of operators, um, you know, that don't have um, uh, any clear idea of what their future looks like, and we urgently need assistance. Um, and the, the state of Victoria is going to be much worse off uh, if these venues start to fail. Yeah, so you're talking about, because you are businesses, and of course you've been uh, accumulating debts such as rent, mortgages, bills, and uh, and even insurance. So obviously uh, uh, there's yep. some businesses that refuse to take a hit, even though uh, we're all supposed to be in it together in COVID-19 is not actually uh, hitting the business community evenly. No, it's not. It's, you know, the hospitality and the music sector were the first to close and the live music and nightclub industry will be the last to open. Um, and, you know, um, whilst I think most operators are all very conscious of the need for public safety to be paramount, um, we are operating under, you know, government decree and it would be um, great if the need to stay shut was accompanied by assistance to do so without losing our entire livelihoods. So uh, you, you see months, although it's uncertain, but you're talking about needing to understand uh, opening the doors to viable capacity. So viable capacity of obviously is how many bums on seats that you require to actually be running a uh, business in a viable sense. Um, and so you're not getting any idea well, from the government well, what's going on there? No, we don't. And, you know, uh, every venue, of course, is, you know, individual. And But, you know, I would probably say confidently that everyone's business model isn't predicated on, um, you know, um, minor capacity. Everyone's, everyone's business model is predicated on um, having a successful capacity, and, and that's a, a full capacity, and that's not really... Um, negotiable unless the business itself is subject to change. So our rent costs are fixed, our utilities costs are fixed, our award rates and penalty rates are fixed, um, it, you know, our supplies are all fixed and all of, all of the rest of it, they're all fixed, if not marginally variable costs that we, that we have to, uh, um, to deal with. And without full capacity, we simply won't make a profit and simply won't be able to um, stay open. It's really, it's very, it's very, very simple, um, you know. And uh, we don't, at this point, understand what the roadmap is to full capacity. Now, of course, you've just let alone uh, when when we might be able to open. No, and you've just described as a business how many other businesses and people hang off you as a linchpin. So you've got your suppliers, but of course, there's also the live musicians. Yep. You've got your live musicians. You've got all the people who, yep. who do the mixing. You've got the people who they hire the equipment from. You've got all the people at the front of, the front of house, yep. all, all the different people that are involved. Yep. So you've had lots of job losses, I presume. Cleaning, con cleaning, cleaning, cleaning contractors, security contractors, you know, um, lighting technicians. <laughs> you know, it, the, the list is 
a pretty substantial one. And hospitality is a, an industry, a very complex industry, um, where we deal with multitude of uh, inputs um, to to get the result um, that we that we need to make it viable. Um, and the complexity of it is often over, overlooked. Um, and the idea that we can simply switch the lights on in September um, or you know July or August and get back to uh, profitability is is uh, it's just not 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 based in reality. It's going to take a long time for this industry to to, uh, to get back to to profitability because of course we're not we're all trading under significantly changed circumstances. There's debt uh, issues, balance sheet problems, tax issues, uh, let alone the fact of course that once even when we are able to reopen, uh, we'll be doing so in a very different market to the one that we are closed in because months will have passed, six months, you know, potentially. So tell me, uh, you've done an open letter with uh, many signatures. Um, You've sent it to... Which part of the Victorian government are you hoping to get a result from? Um, Look, we're talking to a couple of different arms. We've been having some great talks through Music Victoria with uh, Minister Foley's office, um, and they've been very responsive. And, and And I should also mention that Music Victoria through this period, and Patrick Donovan in particular, the CEO, has done an amazing job of uh, coordinating a, a fantastic response. Um, it's just simply that the scale of the problem is, I think, uh, uh, underappreciated, and, and uh, this, that's what this campaign is really about. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.